when I was a kid, I wanted to be a screenwriter, and now I'm a TV writer. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Sara Saidi. Sara was born in Tehran, Iran, smack dab in the middle of a war and an Islamic revolution. She immigrated to the Bay Area with her family in 1982, where they remained undocumented for 20 long-ass years. Once a creative executive for ABC Daytime, Sara now writes novels for teens and TV for everyone. Her credits include the ABC Daytime web series What If, for which she won an Emmy, the Fox sitcom The Goodwin Games, the hit CW drama iZombie, the ABC drama Grand Hotel, and most recently, the CW drama Katie Keene. These days, Sara is excited to develop her YA memoir, Americanized, Rebel Without a Green Card, for TV. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their two sons. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Sara. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a real treat. I read Americanized, and it, it really struck a chord with me as the son of Iranian immigrants. <laughs> made, made me appreciate my parents a lot more for what they went right. through as well. So it was a really it's really cool to have you here now. And we always start with a current curiosity, something that's recently sparked our interest. For me, it's what I would probably consider like the scholarly older cousin to your book, which is this book, mm-hmm. The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics mm-hmm. of Race by Neda Magbula. But um, it's really interesting because it talks about she speaks with all kinds of Iranians, Iranian Jews, Muslim Iranians, people in you know the East Coast, the West Coast, all over. North America, even Canada, maybe, I, I think, if I'm remembering that correctly. But it talks about, you know, certain things that specifically like how on a census form, you and I would probably put white is, is what society would tell us or mm-hmm. expect us to put. Right. But the way we're treated in real life and how we're per- perceived, sometimes it doesn't really match up with the expectation on a census form, basically. So, for example, like, you know, talks about experiences that Iranian immigrants had after, you know, the the hostage situation and how, you know, you could have been treated as a white kid one day and then another the next day. Um, and, and little things like that. And, you know, specific to me and us, actually, we're living in Los Angeles now. And, the, you know, there's a huge Persian community outside of Iran here, and especially in Beverly Hills. And one of the examples that I thought was fascinating in this book is how there's oppression in very subtle ways. So for example, like, Beverly Hills banned columns and certain features that a lot of Iranians were incorporating in their homes when they immigrated here. And it's just like little subtle ways that we mm-hmm. see there's there's still a lot of room for improvement and acceptance. Yeah, I read that book recently and I loved it. And um, Netta, actually, her dad and my dad are best friends. They, no way. They oh to, yeah, <laughs> they, they have this really close-knit circle. It's such a small, small world in our little Iranian community, but they had a close-knit circle of friends in Tehran and they've stayed in touch over the years um so I like I think the last time Netta and I saw each other we were little kids but um (laughs) all right so um yeah she I mean it it was such a topical time to read it because I think we do when we're right now it's such a 
great time that we're all examining our own privilege and white privilege. But then I think as an Iranian, we, we do exist in this strange in-between area, especially for me, because I also am pretty fair skinned compared to a lot of Iranians. And so people don't know right off the bat where I'm from, like I'm pretty ethnically ambiguous. Um, so it, it, the book really spoke to me and that making me really examine the ways that I was treated differently growing up while I'm as an adult also examining my own privilege and the fact that it, to the rest of the world I do present as white and what that means. Um, and yeah, there are so many things I learned in it. Like I didn't know about the, the housing in Beverly Hills and the permitting and all this, you know, the, it, it's that sort of hidden racism yeah. that we don't really uh, know about. So I was so glad that she brought that to light. And then I also felt guilty because I have a tendency to make fun of those really like Baroque houses. And um, I'm like, oh, this is, a, you know, the, the people should be able to do what they want. If they want columns, they should have, give them yeah. all the columns they want. Right. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was cool because usually those academic scholarly books go way over my head. But I thought it was actually pretty accessible too. Yeah, I'm so glad you read it. Yeah, yeah. it's it's, and I think it's it's for everyone. You don't have to be Iranian to connect to it. And um, yeah, it she did such a such, such an amazing job. So, what's something that has recently sparked your curiosity? Well, I guess I'll um, I've been moving on from sociology to psychology a little bit. Um, but I've been really getting into learning about positive psychology which is just sort of the idea of what makes people happy, what makes people, um, you know, just looking at mindset shift, which is, some, it sounds so hippy dippy in a way, but um, I'll just give you an example. I tend to be somebody that skews to the negative. Like if somebody writes an Amazon review about my book and there's one thing that they put in there that's like not great and the rest is really kind, I focus on the not great thing. Um, or like, for example, if my husband makes dinner, if he made a mess in the kitchen, I focus on the mess in the kitchen and not like, oh, that was so sweet of him to want to make me dinner. Um, <laughs> so a lot of what I'm learning about is just a shift in mindset and how a shift in mindset that has um, a more uh, leads to a more positive action and a more positive result. Um, and it's been really helpful to just take a pause and think about what you're thinking and what, how that's making you feel and how, how you're feeling is how, what you're feeling is making you act a certain way. Um, and really understanding that if the thought is different then the emotion and the action and the result can be different too. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm turning 40 this year. And so I think, well, in, in a month. And so I think I'm also really doing that sort of self exploration of, what are the habits that I've had my whole life that I don't really want to bring with me into my 40s? Um, so that's what I've really been interested in. And it's also a lot about um, the process of flow, which as a writer, I think we can relate to and why flow makes us so happy. Um, and it's basically the idea of having a task that has sort of a beginning, middle and an end that's challenging, but that also meets your skill level. And um, one of the things that I'm learning about as far as especially being a mother in quarantine is that one of the reasons it's so hard is that we haven't really been able to have that time for flow. Mm. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting as a writer. Cause I, I was noticing like when I feel the most calm or happy is when I'm at my computer and I'm writing. And I think it's because I do have like two or three hours where I'm just doing a task that I love and I enjoy, but it's also challenging. Um, and sometimes 
motherhood doesn't give you those things. <laughs> right. Yeah, that book, there's that there's that seminal book called Flow, and I, I can't pronounce the author's name for my life, but it's like Michaili something. It's like he has this long, yeah. cool name. But um, that's been on my list for a while. And positive psychology was something I, I stumbled upon a while ago with this. There was this TED Talk, I may have seen it as well, by Sean Aker. Um, and it's, no, I haven't he talks, seen it. Oh, it's really cool. He talks about five things we can all do to literally rewire our brain to be happier. Like they studied these things, and you know, over the course of three weeks, people literally their brains changed. Um, and I, I think I've spouted this off on the podcast before, but I'll try to remember it now. It's like random acts of kindness, mm -hmm. expressing gratitude, exercise, meditation. And there's one other thing I'm forgetting, but not bad. That's a B, four out of five. Yeah. Um, um, but little things like that. And so I remember like, like I, I went down a similar rabbit hole myself and it was like positive psychology in the last few years has been treated a lot more seriously by people in psychology because when it first started it was like thought of even among scientists as hippy dippy stuff but yeah now it's like this stuff actually affects our lives and it's very important and helps us lead happier lives so we should probably treat it more seriously <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like just the just just being conscious of it just being conscious of the fact that i tend to like notice the negative in situations has made has made me have a little bit of a perspective shift. Like I tweeted this yesterday, but I was thinking about the election and how much anxiety it's giving me and how I'm constantly, even like in emails to people when we're like commiserating about everything that's been happening this year. It's like, oh, I'm so scared for November. I'm so scared for the election. And I've been channeling that into action but at the same time i'm like why why can't i think of it as like i'm so excited for the election like i'm so yeah. excited that this is our opportunity to potentially have a new president and if that doesn't happen then it's an opportunity to say okay this is what this country has shown us like what do we want to do with that do yeah. we, do we want to stay here do we want to like you know where do i want to raise my kids like it, it's going to give us answers um yeah. and to be excited for that rather than petrified yeah. And, and I think um, that mental paradigm shift, like even on, on a very micro level, for example, somebody once told me like, instead of saying, sorry, I'm late, say thank you for your patience or something like that. And that probably has a limit. Like you probably can't bust in an hour late. And yeah, say that. that's really but, nice though. I like that. Yeah, but I like that a lot. And so little things like that actually help me like be able when I do get that chance to sit down in front of my computer, not worry about all those other things because I've addressed them and I've moved past them in a smooth way. So as as we now pivot to your creative process i'm curious i've heard you say writing the memoir was actually one of your easier creative endeavors <laughs> which is good to hear i'm personally curious when you were writing americanized how did you figure out the structure and what you wanted each chapter to be about and how many chapters you needed to tell this narrative yeah that's a great question i think what i knew going in was that if it was just going to be a book about um growing up undocumented and trying to get a green card it was going to be like 50 pages because yeah. that was just a portion of a portion of the story. And it was also just in terms of the things that we dealt with day to day on the issue, it was a lot of filling out forms and waiting in lines with the INS. And it just wasn't going to be as interesting to focus purely solely on that topic. And so I knew that it was important to me to also have it be a book about what it's like to be a teenager and what it's like to be an immigrant teenager. Mm. Um, so what I did with the help of my editor and some of the, at, at the time, like some of the editors that I spoke to that were interested in the book really wanted it to be linear, like 
beginning, you know, it, it starts with you finding out you're undocumented and then, and some of the book is linear, but I liked the idea of it kind of feeling like it was a little bit more of like essays and stories and that I would be able to jump around a bit. Um, so as far as looking at the table of contents and the way we structured it, I tried to sprinkle in stories about being um, undocumented amongst the, the teen stuff. So it wasn't just like a whole section of like, now here's the undocumented storyline. Um, and so just trying to balance things like, um, I think that originally there's two chapters about my um, grandmothers and um, initially it was one long chapter and it felt like, oh, it would make more sense to separate these. These could really stand on their own. Um, and trying to sort of parcel things out so it didn't feel like here's a huge section about um, being an insecure teenager and now here's a section about being uh, uh, having my Muslim grandmother Muslim grandmother live with me um, so just trying to figure out ways where we could have that balance where there wasn't going to tonally there wouldn't be long stretches where it would feel too heavy or too bleak um, and yeah it just felt like certain things um, like I knew that the chapter about my sister I really wanted that to be at the beginning because it felt like a really good way into our, into what my personality was like too in contrast to her personality and then um the chapter about my parents I put at the beginning because it's sort of like these are the characters like these are the people yeah. that you're going to live with for the rest of the book so it was important to um tell people about them early on um but the, and then there's a lot of stuff in there that ended up feeling too off topic that we took out like I think I went on like a you know big sidebar about something that happened to me in regards to going to prom at school like there's just a lot of stuff that my editor had to say like okay now it feels like we're getting like 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 if you ever write a book about dating and relationships like this is a good chapter for that but it doesn't really feel like it's right for this <laughs> right interesting and I've heard a lot of authors talk about you know I I try not to pay attention to the audience I try to write what's in my head. I think that's, that sounds particularly challenging when someone's writing a YA book, because I think you really <laughs> do need to be mindful of the audience. That's true. So how do you, how do you strike that balance between writing, writing what you think is true to your story and also being mindful of, you know, this is a very specific audience and I want to make sure this feels right. And yeah, how do you, how do you balance that? That's a good question. I think I, for me, you know, talking about Netta's book and it is, it is digestible, but I think there's also like, I mean, oh, there's words I looked up. I was like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been in college in a really long time. Um, so for me, I just feel like I'm not capable of writing something that's going to be de very like dense because I just feel like I'm not <laughs> that intelligent. It's, I don't have that level of intelligence. Everything I write is going to be probably like pretty digestible because that's just the way that I talk and think. Um, so that part, I guess, sort of came easily to me and that I wanted the book to be conversational. I wanted it to feel like, oh, I'm just sitting here telling you a story about my life. Um, and I think that's why it was easier to write than other stuff that I've done, because I wasn't as worried about it sounding good or sounding yeah. really smart. Um, I wanted it to just be, you know, a little bit self-deprecating and funny, um, but and and I think that's why I have gotten some like some of the favorite emails that I've gotten from younger readers or high school kids is like this is the first assignment that I've been excited like book that I've been excited to pick up and keep reading because it's just funny and fun and um, it doesn't feel like homework. Um, so that that I think coming from a high school kid is a huge compliment. Um, 
but I think that's just yeah I mean that's my voice it's the way that I that I speak it's I I think it is always especially now that I'm getting older and existing in the world of YA it's hard to know I don't want to talk down to teenagers right I also don't want to try too hard to speak their language because then that yeah. feels like I'm a fraud too so really in some ways I wrote the book um with without the age of the reader in in mind um there was some stuff that we took out that felt like it was um maybe a little too inappropriate for the age group that would be reading it um yeah it's hard with YA like it's you know I I try and write it as though like this is what I felt and thought about when I was a teenager and less worried about what's the lingo that kids are saying these right. days and you know um i feel like if you get too caught up in that like there's still some sentences in americanized that if i see or stumble across them i cringe a little bit i'm like oh, i feel like i was trying too hard there like i think there's speaking of getting caught up in negative reviews i think that, that there was a review somewhere that somebody said that like she's trying too hard to like <laughs> make pop culture references and it's like well if you really knew me you would know that i would spend 45 minutes with you talking about taylor swift and kanye west right. like i'm just <laughs> as interested in that as anything else um but yeah always just being worried like that i'm not trying too hard to cater to a younger audience and that they don't really need to be catered to in that way yeah, and you've worked on CW shows, which I guess are the YA equivalent on TV. Yeah. Do you have a similar approach in mind when you're writing for TV and when it's a teen show? I think so. I mean, one of my favorite shows still is uh, My So-Called Life. So I feel like that show is just so honest and felt so uncomfortably real at times. And I've gone back and visited it semi recently and now I'm like oh my gosh now I'm relating to the mom now now I'm rooting for the for the mom I'm like why is she being so mean to her poor mom uh so talk about having a perspective shift um but yeah I think with tv it can be a little bit harder because you are mostly writing dialogue so then maybe you do have to worry about like well is this the way teenagers talk today right um so I think there there's more concerns I mean still the characters that I've written about for in CW shows has been in like their early 20s um so I feel like there's a little bit of leeway there um but yeah I mean one of the things that I always say is it's you really have to remember what it, what did it feel like to be a teenager like it's not it's it's not just about rem remembering the things that happened to you but how did it feel when those things happened to you and if that's right. something that you can articulate in your work then I think it's going to resonate with young people um and a couple, I mean, with, with Americanized too, it being a memoir, it took place in the 90s. So there's a little part of me that always wants to write about young people in the 90s, because I feel like, well, I don't, I don't have to worry about like, uh, TikTok or things like that, because none yeah. of that existed then. And I, I can just say like, yes, I am an expert on what it was like to be a teenager in 1995, because I was a teenager in 1995. Um, I can't go around pitching uh, shows in the 90s constantly. <laughs> I mean, narratively, it's so much easier to not have to worry about plot holes of cell phones oh, and yeah. that kind of stuff. I mean, geez, it, it sucks that like as a writer now, we always have to think, well, why couldn't they just pick up the phone and be like, come get me? 
<laughs> I know. I mean, I used to work, I was a creative executive in soap operas for a period of time. And it was the funniest thing in soaps because oftentimes if you watch a soap opera, people just show up at each other's houses. Like I just came by to talk to you about this thing. And it's like, no one in real life does that. Like I would never drive to your house right now and be like, Hey, right. are you around? I need to talk yeah. to you about something. <laughs> <laughs> so it always felt like, well, why aren't they out? But then you can't do an hour of television where everyone's just talking to each other on the phone yeah yeah <laughs> that's but interesting yeah. though the fact that you were you were a creative exec and i i used to be an assistant at an agency before i got a job in writers rooms and it, and i've interned at studios so i got to see execs giving notes i got to see agents giving notes and i always thought that was super fascinating and i think the times that in writers rooms i've been able to hear the execs giving our show notes i've always had like little antennas up like oh i think there's like something they're trying to say within that note. Yeah. Um, did you did you feel like your background, you know, as a creative exec has affected your writing at all or your creative process at all? I think so. I think it's actually been great for my process and for my writing. And I, I always say it'd be great if every writer could spend six months, you know, being in, in the shoes of an executive. Um, because for me, it's made me a little bit, e it's made it a little bit easier to be on the receiving end of notes, having been somebody that gave notes for a period of time. Um, because I also know, I, part of it is just like empathy. I also know it's like, it's hard to give notes. It's hard to deal with writers who are going to be defensive about notes. And so I just have a lot of empathy for the process of having to be the person to deliver feedback. Um, but I also remember that when I was an executive, it was like, really genuinely, I'm, I wasn't trying to ruin the creative process or ruin the show. I really did have thoughts about how to make it better. Um, and on most of the things that I've worked on at the end of the day, the notes do generally make it better. Um, and if there's something that you vehemently disagree with, I think it's okay to kindly push back. Um, but one of the things that I've heard through the process of executives working with me is, oh, it's so easy to give you notes. Like, yeah, because I've been there, I, I get it. Like, um, and you know, there's certain things like I, I also feel like you need to be careful about um, it not coming off as though you don't have a vision and that you don't have a specific point of view because you're just gonna say, okay, okay, yeah, sure, I can do that um, right. to everything. I think it's important to say like, this is what I'm really trying to get across. Um, but I think it's, I don't know, I, I, I think you can get pretty far as a writer in this industry, especially these days of just being like easy to work with and pleasant because um, a lot of people aren't. And I think <laughs> that there's a really long period of time in this industry where no one cared about that and that was fine. And I think that people are um, less tolerable to that kind of behavior, which is good. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of it comes from a place of empathy, having been the person that gave notes, having, having not been treated very well sometimes because of those yeah. notes. So not wanting to repeat that cycle. Um, and then also like what you were saying, it's like, I do think I speak their language a little bit. Like I can sort of understand what the note behind the note is. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, it, it really helps. Sometimes um, I'll admit, well now it's out there for the world in this podcast, but when I've met with showrunners, I don't necessarily volunteer that information because sometimes yeah. I'm afraid they're gonna feel like, oh, there's, there's gonna be like a network executive in my right. writer's room. Um, but I tend to think that when it comes to pitching, it's helped me be concise 
it's helped me um, read the room as far as when to talk and when to let others speak. And then it's also helped me be a bit of a problem solver um, because I think that's what you're doing sometimes as a network executive is like, this isn't working. This is why I don't think it's working. I'm going to throw out a suggestion, take it or leave it. But um, it's helped me not just point out the issues, but come up with ways that maybe we could solve them. Yeah. And even I'm curious about in the process of when you're pitching a book or pitching a script to executives, has that affected how you go into the process of pitching your own material? Yeah. Pitching scares the shit out of me. I hate it so much. There's nothing I hate more in terms of being a writer. And I don't, I personally don't like it when people say like, I hate writing. Writing is so hard because I feel like it's just salt in the wound for all the people out there that are trying to do what we're doing. And I'm, I'm really grateful for what I get to do, but pitching is such a different beast because it's so you're, you're performing and that just doesn't come naturally to me. Um, but I think, um, I guess to answer your question, going into a pitch, I think I anticipate what the notes are going to be a little bit more. And I think I've worked with executives that have been helpful with that. Like, this is what we really need to, like with Americanized, there's a couple of things. We initially pitched it to ABC. There's a couple of things we, we knew that we had to justify. One was the fact that it was going to take place in the 90s mm-hmm. and it was going to be a period piece because they had a couple other shows that already were. And um, the other was going to be kind of making them feel comfortable with the idea of doing a show about a family that was undocumented because yeah. that was going to feel like a little bit maybe too political for what, ABC was used to in terms of their family comedies. I mean, I think Blackish does a great job of yeah. addressing things that you normally wouldn't think they would. Um, so those are the things that we knew, like, okay, we have to make sure that as we're pitching this, we are explaining why we feel so strongly that it has to take place in the 90s. Um, so yeah, I think it helps me anticipate what the fears of the network executives might be so that I make sure to address them in the pitch. And that's a good segue into the process of adapting your book, Americanized, into a pilot. Yeah. What was that like for you in general? And how do you how do you decide like what what goes in this episode one? What needs to go in here? And what are some things that I'll save for the rest of the season? Well, it's been an interesting process because I wrote the pilot initially for ABC and then they passed on it and would and then Disney Plus um, was like, you know, this is something that we would be really interested in doing. And so now we've been redeveloping it for Disney Plus, which has been, it, it almost feels like writing the second episode of the show in some ways, because the oh, pilot is so different. It has like um, a completely different story engine to it. Um, and, um, but, but the process is interesting. The hardest thing about the process is being more concerned about how my family is going to react to it because I, I feel like the memoir is very true to obviously very true to life. And I feel like the good and the bad, it was all what really happened. And so um, as far as I know, my family was pretty happy with what was in there Um, with a TV show, especially when it's a family comedy, it is going to feel a little bit more, I don't want to say contrived, but I think, you are going to do sort of larger than life versions of your family members. Um, So I'm just a little bit more like concerned that they're going to look at it and be like, that's not, that's how you thought I was like, or like, that's not what I was like. (laughs) 
Um, so there's a little bit of more of that being a little bit self-conscious adapting it. Um, but I think you also have to be willing to um, have a little bit of emotional distance from it because as much as it is about my family, there are things that you put in because they work in terms of a TV show and having more conflict that maybe were, wasn't exactly what happened in my household. Um, right. It's, it's fascinating how um, when you write something about people inspired by people in your life, the things they cling on to, like I had an experience of writing a pilot that I drew inspiration for my own family uh -huh. and my mom took a glimpse at it and was like, I don't like that name of that character. That, that is the mom character. And I was like, this is a fictional character. This isn't you. I don't even remember the name. It was probably like Sanam. She's like, change it. I was like, fine, you'll be Soraya now. Fine. Does that make you happy? So <laughs> it's interesting That's what so they funny. cling on to. I mean, when you when you go into a script, I understand the process of like outline and then you flesh out flesh mm -hmm. out the outline, get to a script. For writing a book, I know there's a book proposal, but it seems like there's a bigger jump from book proposal to book. Could you talk about right. that process? Yeah, I definitely still outline when I write books too, because I think it's just the way that I've been trained as a TV writer. Um, but my first two books, or my first book, Never Ever, which was YA fiction, because I'd never written a book before, I, I wrote it in its entirety before taking it out to publishers. So oh, that, you wrote a book on spec. Yeah, I wrote a book on Whoa. spec. Yeah, which was, you know... I think in, in hindsight, like it was, it was the way I had to sell it. I think it would have yeah. been harder to sell it on proposal. Um, and my lit agent recommended, she's like, if there are more people I can take it to as a full manuscript, you're already proving to them that you're capable of completing a book. Cause I think that's a real concern that editors have when they're working with somebody that's never written a book. Um, it was a little bit of a more challenging process after the fact, because then there was a lot of like, big changes or I think when you sell something on proposal and the editor's part of the process from the beginning, um, they're steering you in the right direction. And when it was the whole thing written on spec, there's a lot of things that we then had to work together to change. Um, but Americanized is a book proposal. Yeah, it was really loose. It was just like, this is my family. Here's a timeline. I did a timeline of our immigration process. And then I did one sample chapter. Um, and so that was, to take that and then do an entire book. Yeah, it was definitely a lot different. I think what I did with that was rather than start with an outline, it was like, start with the stories. Like what are the stories that I want to tell in this book? So yeah. kind of figure out what are the chapters? And then because it wasn't really linear, I think it was a little bit easier structurally to, to just look at it more in terms of pace and tone in terms of where I wanted to place certain chapters. Um, but with, um, with, fiction yeah I still outline I still definitely like I know what the beginning middle and end is going to be and then what I did with um never ever when I was re because I rewrote a significant chunk of it um I, I outlined by chapter so like every chapter it was almost like not as not as detailed as I would for a pilot but just kind of like a beat sheet like okay chapter five this is it starts this way these are the plot points that I'm going to hit this is how it's going to end um, and that's just, for me, it's just easier as a writer because I feel like you have a roadmap and you're not just making shit up as you go along. Um, so I found, I, I find outlines very helpful. I tend to write them way too long, which then gets me into trouble. Like the, for um, this Disney Plus 
pilot for Americanized, I think I wrote a 17 or 18 page outline, which for half hour comedy is like way too long, <laughs> way too long. But, um, but I just think the more detail, the easier it is, the less anxiety I have going into writing the script. Yeah, because you've done more of the heavy lifting up front. So when it is time to put it in script format, let's say like in a 17 or 18 page outline, you probably put a lot more dialogue. I imagine I'm just guessing you put probably more yeah. dialogue than you would have in a regular outline. But conversely, yeah. when you go to sit and write the script, you already have that dialogue. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's helpful. I mean, I worked on when I was on iZombie, we wrote really long outlines for those episodes. And um, Rob Thomas, who is the showrunner and co-creator of the show, always said he's like, and I think this has been so helpful to me. I think I get a lot of my outline writing skills from being on that show is clarity is huge. You just want to be clear because you have to remember that these executives were not in the writer's room with us. So there's no shorthand there. You, we have to be clear. Um, and he, you know, he's somebody that writes with like his dialogue is so sharp and so good. Um, but that in outline, he's like, it's, save some of it, save some of it for the script. Like we want to yeah. be able to surprise them in the script. Like don't put all of your best stuff in the outline. The outline is really to make sure that the story structure is working and that they understand the character motivations and they understand what the A, B and C story are, but you don't have to have like all of your sparkle in an outline. Um, and I try and remember that advice, but I always feel, you know, sometimes I feel like, especially for a pilot, if I don't put some sparkle in the pilot, they're going to be like, this isn't going to be good. Right. <laughs> so before yeah, before we to... wind yeah before we wind down with rapid fire i want to ask you about your process in tv rooms because i've heard you say you've been in rooms where there's group writing which is when there, there are different ways that showrunners tackle group writing but the concept being that writers will split up the script so if there's an episode two for example you know you might take one scene somebody else will take another scene there's mm -hmm. still a writer of record who ties it all in but that's group writing and then there's you know individual writing where it's like Sarah go off and write episode two go off outline yeah. it come back we'll give you notes then go off and do the script for somebody who is new to tv writing or curious about it what are what are the tips and tricks basically that have worked for you when it comes to group writing and what's been effective for you in individual writing if that makes sense yeah that definitely makes sense um I think of the two processes I think individual writing is more <laughs> anxiety inducing because you are not only are you by yourself but you're also not in the writer's room where usually is like a space of you know if you're lucky enough to work with good people it's a space of like comfort and camaraderie and so you have a little bit of FOMO just not being in the room and being like what are they talking about like what am I missing so that part of it, it feels very isolating and then also you just feel like this is all on me to make it good and it's it's an overwhelming amount of scenes that you have to do in a short amount of time. I mean, you get, you get used to it, you know, but it, I think it has a different kind of like isolation to it. Um, and then group writing, I find it pretty, I find it easier because you get like five or six scenes in an episode, you all split off and you write your episodes. I think the thing, the way that you have to really train your brain to be is like, um we're all in this together there I think you can feel a little bit more like are my scenes going to be good compared to everyone else's like I, I think you can get into your head a little bit more in terms of if you have a little bit of a competitive side like I hope my scenes are good too like I know her scenes are going to be amazing like I have to make sure mine are just as good um I think you're a little bit more worried about your work being side by side compared to everybody 
um, one of the things that I love about group writing is that it just gives you more variety. It's like three or four days you're in the room and then a couple of days you're in your office, you're writing, then you're back in the room. The way Katie Keene did it, I thought was really great, which is for every episode, like if I was the writer of that episode, but we all write our scenes, you get a couple of days with the script to put all the mm -hmm. scenes together, to make sure that everything tracks and makes sense, to make trims, to throw in lines of dialogue that you want to put in. So I think it also kind of trains you in the role of showrunner, because that's usually what a showrunner does at a certain point, takes their path on a script. Um, I guess what I would say, though, is like, I worry for people who are on, have only done shows that are one or the other, because you're inevitably going to end up in a room where they're like, you know, I've done group writing my last two shows, the show that I'm on now doesn't do it. And I'm happy that it doesn't because I'm like, oh, if I kept if I kept doing that group writing, I don't know if I could write a script by myself. Right. <laughs> um, so I think it's good to bounce around. Um, but it does seem like more and more people are, are doing group writing. Yeah, yeah, I've been heard. I've been hearing different rooms that have been doing it, um, and I hadn't heard about it until like fairly recently. It does seem, yeah. you know, having gone recently through the process of writing my first script, which was super cool, co-writing it with Great. somebody in our writers' room. Um, yeah, it can be very isolating. Like you, I mean, fortunately, I had one other person to bounce ideas off of, but otherwise, it's just you and your computer, and yeah. good luck. <laughs> I know. It's, yeah. I, I think, yeah, group writing is more efficient too because it's so fast. You like write a script yeah. in two days, basically. Um, but yeah, well, one of the things that I will say, like um, for iZombie, we didn't do group writing. And I think one of the writers just was like, just enjoy it. Like have fun while you're writing it. Like try and make yourself laugh while you're doing the scenes. And I think the scripts that I wrote with that attitude and that perspective ended up, you know, we talked about positive psychology and like yeah. perspective and positive perspective and positive result but I think that um that script turned out the best because I was able to calm that like frantic voice of like what am I doing do I even know what I'm doing yeah and I'm also really glad that my first opportunity to write was actually in the individual model because I I proved to myself I could do it um Absolutely. so it's, it's good to have that internal voice you know motivating you because so often as a writer, I feel like I get the other voice being like, dude, what are you doing? Like, this guy has been doing it for 30 years. You can't do it like this guy. Right. Exactly. Um, so it was it was cool to to have that experience. Um, this has been really enlightening. It's been really awesome to learn about your process. As somebody who's enjoyed your work, it's been a real treat. Thank you so much. This has been yeah. great for me, too. Thank you. Awesome. So we'll just wind down with a little rapid fire. Firstly, okay. what's an app that you can't live without? Uh, I, the New York Times cooking app, I love, I highly recommend it's very much worth, I think it's what, like three or $4 a month worth every penny. <laughs> Gotta check that out. Um, who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? You know, it's funny cause there's not a lot, I don't know enough Iranian actresses. Like I don't want to name just like a white woman with brown hair. Yeah. Um, and we did do a lot of, um, we did start doing casting for Americanized um for the abc pilot that didn't go and so there's a lot of like really lovely talented iranian actors out there actresses out there some of them like some of them are too beautiful to name because i feel like that that would just be like kind of ridiculous <laughs> um but i i feel like i i don't think i have an answer to that one because i feel like some of the names people might not recognize but there's a couple really good younger actresses that we looked at to play like young 14 year old me and i will say just you think you think about that question like who would play me and then when it's actually when you're actually really asking yourself like it, it's so bizarre and surreal um 
but yeah, I mean, I guess if you had asked me like 20 years ago where I wouldn't have thought about like, oh, it should be an Iranian person because I'm Iranian, yeah. I probably would have been like, no, it's Portman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. So as I asked... As I asked you this question, this is just a question I like to ask all my guests. But as I asked you, I realized, oh, this person has actually gone through the casting process of finding <laughs> their doppelganger. <laughs> You're the first one who I've encountered well, in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned your mom and the the name of the character, but like it was funny showing my parents like casting tapes of like, oh, this person, and and hearing their feedback. Where I think there was one guy where my mom was like, but he's not bald. Your dad is bald. I'm like, that's okay. Like, <laughs> right. trust me, a guy on TV, he's probably gonna have a full head of hair. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? Um, it would be to be able to clone myself so that I could be working and then the other me could be like t playing with my kids and spending time with them. But yeah, if I could clone myself, that would be great. And where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? Um, I'm a big city person. So I've never been to London, which seems crazy. So I'd love to go to London. Um, and then I'd love to go other cities like Tokyo and Hong Kong. I'd love to visit. Um, but yeah, my, my husband's a big outdoorsy guy. I'm like, oh, I want to be in the city. Awesome. And lastly, what's a song that you like to jam to right now? jam to right now god i feel like i'm not jamming to anything <laughs> well we, um, we have a spotify playlist where we include whatever song the guest recommends so we have this cool playlist of all our guest recommendations they're very eclectic very fun if there's any contribution you'd like to make to it we'll include it okay well one song that i like right now is um physical by dua lipa awesome that's okay a good cool. one. that's a good dance song and where can people find your work and follow you on social media um i'm at Sarah, not Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. And that's S-A-A-A-R-A, -A -A not Sarah with an H. Um, and I'm not on Facebook. I just couldn't do it anymore. Good I for you. Deleted, yeah, I deleted my Facebook about a year ago. Um, and then my website too, sarasaidywriter.com. Awesome. And if anyone's curious about the podcast, you can check us out on Instagram at hdydpod or online at hdydpod.com. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. It's so great to meet you. Likewise.